Good evening, listeners. Join us now as we discuss a dystopian future only slightly less disturbing than the possibility of a Trump-led United States. We're talking Repo, the genetic opera, and this is a matter of taste. Like Dave's in the wild. <laughs> <laughs> or doze in the landscape of the mind. It's gonna be so subversive, they're gonna love it. <laughs> <laughs> so dark. <laughs> 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 she was like a sad cactus. I'm sorry, but I want to be able to see out of my knuckle hair. You, you've opened my eyes. <laughs> we are a hive mind, we are one. Oh, hey, little nep it is. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> yeah, that's upsetting. Say the word. You know the word. <laughs> it's wackadoo. Welcome, listeners. This is a matter of taste. I'm Ian, and I'm here with Fio. Hello. And we are here to discuss the 2008 American splatterpunk rock opera musical comedy horror film, Repo the Genetic Opera. It's, uh, it's, it's something. It is something. <laughs> and that is how Wikipedia defines it. This is a movie. <laughs> and it, it honestly, uh... It's a movie that I thoroughly enjoy, despite its flaws. Um, how did you get introduced to the movie, Theo? Was it through my my showing back in college? Uh, it was uh, through your insistence on me borrowing it. Ah, okay. <laughs> in retrospect, I probably insisted that to many people. Yes, you. Uh, I recall you physically placing this in my hands and telling me to go watch it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I don't remember, we were like playing Halo in your room or something like that. Ah, uh, okay. Or in somebody's room, I yeah. can't remember. Uh, <laughs> I don't recall the specifics, but I do remember you uh, giving me this DVD and telling me to go to watch, yeah. go watch it. Of the people that I suggested this movie to, you were probably the most appropriate recipient. You probably didn't even know that at the time. I think we only met like a week ago at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you probably just like mentioned something that sounded vaguely horror metal, something to do with that. And I was just like, oh, then you should watch this. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I'm sure there was something that uh, that prompted you to give me this DVD, because this is not a movie that I would show to people that I had met a week ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So. So I'm sure uh, I'm sure something had come up. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it might have come out of a conversation on Nine Inch Nails or something. Maybe it might have because for those who don't know, there is a very strong vein of Nine Inch Nails in the music of this. Uh, but anyway, I actually discovered this. I think it was through one of Cleolinda's link spams when she back when she was doing those. Uh, and it was just like, oh, this is a thing that's happening. But the first trailer for it, I just was blown away by the music and the layers and the different people involved. And I was just like, 
I have no clue what this is going to be like, but it looks like it, it's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so I actually, like, from then, that point forward, I was following it pretty closely, like, the uh, development pro or the, I guess, post-production process, and, like, the as they were figuring out, oh, can we get it in major theaters, most theaters? And it's like, no, we're going to have a limited release. And then, like, oh, crap, it's uh, not the full soundtrack, but here's the soundtrack. And then later they released the deluxe edition. I was like, oh, I should have just waited for that. Okay. But, uh... When I actually, I, I pre-ordered the DVD, and when I got it, I think it was like, I, I think I might have put up like a Facebook event or something for it, and it was just like, hey, I'm going to do two showings of this movie some night, and anyone who wants to watch it, come watch it. And this was freshman year, so it was kind of before I was uh, more acquainted with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, And I remember... Sitting through the first showing and being like, huh. <laughs> and then people showed up for the second showing and I was like, oh, okay. I have, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into more, more into detail with that <laughs> at some point. Uh, just a quick, since we did the, like the sort of quick history of Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, Repo the Genetic Opera is a much more recent, uh, in, a much more recent thing than Little Shop of Horrors. Uh, it originally started out as a 10 minute rock operetta that, uh, Terrence Zadunik and uh, Darren Smith performed at, like, clubs or something. It was something they used to do. I, also, I've watched a lot of special features and interviews about this movie, so I do have a lot of trivia to draw from, uh, to drop on. But yeah, so Terrence Zadunik and Darren Smith, the lyricist and composer, respectively, of Reaper the Genetic Opera, they were doing these 10-minute rock operettas and clubs and stuff, and one that people kept asking them about, I guess, was The Necromerchant's Debt, uh... Which they turned into a stage musical that came out in 2002. Uh, and then, uh, they, I can't remember how they met Darren Lynn Bowsman. Uh, Darren Lynn Bowsman, the director of Saws 2, 3, and 4. Uh, or maybe he approached them about it, but they were like, hey, we have this, this, this like, dark rock opera, and we've always seen it as a movie, and Darren Lynn Bowsman was like, this is exactly the movie I want to make. And <laughs> after Saw 2, the studio was like, hey, Saw 2 was awesome, made us so much money, what do you want to do? Anything's on the table. I want to do Repo the Genetic Opera. Anything but that. Saw 3 rolls around. Okay, awesome. Saw 3 did so well. What do you want to do? Anything. You can do anything. I want to do Repo the Genetic Opera. Uh, maybe not. And then finally they put together like some test footage and they showed that to the studio and Lionsgate was like, okay, I guess. And then they made the movie and the rest is history, I suppose. <laughs> so yeah. <laughs> Where do we want to start in terms of actual discussion of the movie? Want to talk about the, uh, the cast? Yeah, the cast is probably if, if there's any way you're going to sell this movie to somebody, I think it's going to be through the cast. Yeah, that is usually the way I, I introduced it to people. 
because the cast is pretty uh, pretty absurd. It really is. We got Alexa Vega from Spy Kids, Paul Sorvino from Goodfellas, Anthony Stewart Head, a.k.a. Giles from Buffy, Sarah Brightman, the original Christine from Phantom of the Opera, Paris Hilton, Bill Mosley from, I think, several Rob Zombie movies, uh, Ogre, a singer from uh, uh, Skinny Puppy. I did have it right. Uh, and uh, Terrence Sedunik, the lyricist. And yeah, so that's quite the... That, that's Like, I mentioned this on Twitter when I did my live tweet. The movie is flawed, but I think the casting was spot on. Yeah, I, I mean... <laughs> The movie's the movie's pretty heavily flawed, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we were we were talking about this uh, a little earlier too that the music is just like so on the nose. And... The lyrics the lyrics tend to be very on the nose. Um, there's a there's a charm to that though. Yeah, and there's like, a... it's, it's um it's not for everybody. Yeah, but honestly, it's so blunt that I I do find it kind of charming. Well, and it also being completely fair, there are a lot of straight up Broadway musicals that have lyrics that are very on the nose in the same way, and they do well. Uh, it just so happens that this one is about genetic organ repossession. <laughs> mm. Uh, possibly a less wide of an audience for that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's uh, you're pitching to a pretty niche crowd there. Yeah, well, and like I remember uh, talking to Louis uh, about a few of these, our friend Louis about some of these songs, and he, like, I remember him after watching the movie and after listening to the soundtrack. I think he was just like, "Dude, there, there are certain, there are certain like melodies in there that are awesome, and then the lyrics are just like, like this one he he kept like." like zeroing in on was the remember what you did to money. Yeah. That's like a Greek chorus or whatever in the background of that one song. Yeah. Which they like great melody for that line. But the fact that it's just talking so specifically about Marnie kind (laughs) of, yeah, he's haunted by what he did for his, to his wife. How do we communicate this to the audience? Why don't we have a group of backup singers Reminding him to be haunted by what he did to his yeah. wife. <laughs> and honestly, like the, the way that they integrated uh, the sort of Greek chorus aspect of this mu- musical is a lot better than I think a lot of movie musicals tend to do with that sort of thing. Because usually they were able to figure out ways to justify it in the scene, whether it was the gen turns or uh, uh, the like Zydrate addicts. Um, and then the one time they don't really have people in the room present for those Greek chorus moments is when the monster rise, uh, let the monster rise when, uh, when, uh, Nathan is going like, didn't I build a house, a home? And he hears the, you did, you did. But that kind of works there because it's like the voices in his head telling him like, no, you're totally fine. Yeah. <laughs> you, you are in the right, sir. <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, just lyrically, some of the things are just, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know what? There, there's a lot of flawed songs. There's, there's, um, 
the the movie has issues, but I mean, Zydrate Anatomy, I think, makes up for all of it. That song kicks all of the ass. It's so good. It's it is that song alone is worth the entire rest of the musical. <laughs> it is the catchiest song. Uh, it's the catchiest metal song I've ever heard. <laughs> and it, in a way that it isn't just like oh uh, a pop song in metal sheep clothing's clothing or. Would it be a sheep in wolf's clothing then? <laughs> yeah, I actually. Oh god, I just read that earlier. I can't remember what it was in reference to. But all of it comes down to the fact that the the like structure of it, not necessarily rhyme screen because rhyme scheme because it's actually repeated lines. It's wheels on the bus. It is literally wheels on the bus. <laughs> Zydrate comes in a little glass vial. A little glass vial? And the little glass vial goes into the gun like a battery. And the Zydrate gun goes somewhere against your anatomy. And when the gun goes off, it sparks and you're ready for surgery. Surgery. Um, like, I, I'm sure that in the editing process, I've already inserted a clip of the song, so just... Picture that ver that first verse of the song, and now I'm gonna sing it with wheels on the bus. The wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round, round and round. <laughs> the wheels on the bus go round and round all through the town. It uh, it is, and I can't <laughs> I can't not picture that now. <laughs> yeah, and I'm pretty sure they actually brought that up in one of the interviews. They were like. We needed to figure out a way to explain the use of Zydrate in a way that was quick and easy to remember. And they basically turned it into a nursery, nursery rhyme. It's the, one of the most fucked up nursery rhymes ever. Nursery rhymes ever. <laughs> but there it is. But yeah, everything about that song is incredibly catchy. <laughs> and again, this is like... the. When it comes to uh, how specific do you get with lyrics and how to what degree, at, at what point do they become silly, it's a tough it's tough to figure out where to draw the line. Because there are plenty of musicals and operas, well, specifically with opera, if you're doing a, a true opera, then everything is sung, which for the most part, repo is. Like there are, there are things that are called rock operas that aren't necessarily an opera in the same sense that the definition would suggest. Mm -hmm. But Repo, for the most part, aside from like a few lines in between songs and a few lines close to the end of the movie, is pretty much sung through opera. And because of that, you get stuff like Paris Hilton's character going to her dad and whining about her botched-up surgery. And it's like, well, okay, if we're committing to the whole sung through thing, uh, we gotta set this to music, but... Do we really? <laughs> like, I ran into that issue when I was working on my own rock opera, where I was like, okay, I know it's called a rock opera, but I don't think anyone will uh, uh, be pissed off if I don't set up set these, like, music industry business dealings to music. It's a lot easier if I just write it out as a scene and... Uh, write music for the parts that I actually care about or actually have emotional resonance. <laughs> um, which, again, like, I, I 
this this feels like a topic that would be better suited for like one of those side videos I keep saying I'm going to do and still haven't done yet. Um, <laughs> because it's more talking about like the the theory and stuff behind the the music writing and everything. But uh, one song where I don't mind it so much is Legal Assassin. Legal Assassin is one of my favorite songs in the whole thing mm-hmm. because it's Anthony Stewart had doing such a kick-ass performance and it's got a great this each section has a really cool feel to it and the dynamics that change during the song are really interesting money i need you now look what i've become the nightmare that sees your fear is the father you left But yeah, besides Zydrate Anatomy, do you have any other favorite songs in the movie? <clears throat> um, looking through the list now. Let the Monster Rise is pretty badass. I, I like that quite a bit. Yeah. Um, what's, what's Shiloh's song that seems like... Shiloh has a song that begins kind of like a very... Uh, like a very sort of detached lament. Yeah. And then in the middle of the first verse cuts in with the line, why are my genetics such a bitch? Yes. Infected. Is that infected? Yeah. Yeah, that's infected. Yeah, I like infected quite a bit as well. Uh, that's one of those songs where it's like blunt, but it's like just charmingly blunt. Well, yeah, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a setting the stage song and it, I think it works pretty well as that. And I also just really like the music. It's got yeah. this that really cool moving uh, uh, melody line that starts out on the piano and then transfers over to the cello by the end of the song, uh, or at the end of the song, I think it's on the cello. Um, and then they have that that just those power chords in the middle of the song that are just sort of like that sort of grooving, uh, not punk necessarily, but not just like heavy metal type thing. I, I, I like that rhythm. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like an odd throwback hard rock kind of yeah kind of deal. Um, um, yeah, I like that song quite a bit. Uh, and it's those like I, <laughs> it's a culmination of so many things that shouldn't work. That honestly, just the fact that they tried it works. You know, like the the lyrics of that song are so cumbersome. Mm. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, they, like he throws in so they. Again, because they're, they're setting up the, the sort of, one of the main ideas of the whole musical. He's fitting in words that you normally wouldn't hear in a song, like heredity and uh, yeah. genetics and stuff like that. But it's sort of, it, it's one of those songs that it's close to the beginning of the movie. And so it's sort of teaching you the vocabulary of the movie. Yeah. 
Um, and I think it works best, like, again, uh, not going too far down the theory route, but I think it works best, best in songs that sort of, uh, conceptual, they, they, they're songs that are more concepty than uh, plot driven. Uh, like Infected, Legal Assassin is, is kind of more concept than, than plot driven. Or it's, it's not necessarily concept, but it's, it's specific to the emotion that Nathan is feeling in the moment. It's not being used to specifically drive the plot forward. Yeah. I think it's in stuff where, uh, where it's more, a little more plotty that, that the lyrics can feel a little bit more silly. Um, and sometimes it, it's even just the presentation because 21st Century Cure is a song that I really enjoy. And I think it, it's a great, like, concept song because it's presenting the world, this world to you. You could listen to that song outside the context of the musical and it, it tells not necessarily a complete story, but it tells a complete concept. It's like, yeah. this is the way the world is now. The way that they filmed it in the movie, like I mentioned on Twitter, really bothered me because they sort of shoehorned it into being this conversation between the grave robber and Shiloh so that it wouldn't have to be this fourth wall breaking thing. But later on in the movie, they have the grave grave robber break the fourth wall anyway. So I kind of wish they would have just done it that way. Yeah. Yeah. And I agree with you on that. Uh, I found that really interesting when you, uh, you were, I was reading your live tweet. Um, no, I actually wasn't uh, wasn't at all familiar with the uh, stage play. Oh yeah. Um, so that was that was an interesting. Yeah, and interesting take on it. Yeah, and full full disclosure, I've never actually seen or listened to an original soundtrack from the stage play, but the way that the song is on the uh, on the soundtrack. It's not broken up the way that it is in the movie. A similar thing happens with things you see in a graveyard, although that's because that that's sort of uh, done in reprises, and so they it was decided with the main soundtrack rather than just have these three separate tracks, just throw them all into one because it sounds like they fit. Mm-hmm. But with 21st Century Cure, that to me, just from my experience with musical theater, felt, felt very much like a song that would be... At the beginning of the play, like, it's sort of like Genetic Repo Man. Genetic Repo Man does the same thing, and so they were probably like, oh, well, we just had Genetic Repo Man do that, so we can't do that again with 21st Century Cure. Um, honestly, though, I... It's it's tough. Again, <laughs> figuring out the way to pace stuff in a movie format, uh, figure out, figuring out how you present it... Uh, because I, I, I've heard, like, I remember in interviews, I can't remember if it was for, like, Les Miserables or Sweeney Todd or something. I think it was Sweeney Todd because most of the soundtrack for Les Miserables was pretty much intact the way it was from the stage play. Um, but I think it was with, with Sweeney Todd. I can't remember if it was Tim Burton or Sondheim or someone else talking about the movie and talking about how on stage, when people go to the theater... A character bursts into a three-minute-long song about some sort of concept or something, or they're, what they're feeling in the moment, and the theater audience accepts that. Movie audiences are not necessarily going to accept that. And again, the, the, this is speak. The, I'm not speaking as if I necessarily agree with this. This is what just what I remember them saying in the interview or whatever, is that they they don't believe that. 
movie audiences are ne- necessarily going to want to sit around uh, for the full three minutes, and instead they might want to just be like, okay, after the first verse, we got it. Let's just move along. Uh, stage musicals tend to be longer than movie musicals, too, and so that's another thing, but... Yeah, I, again, it's one of those things that's not rooted in storytelling necessarily. It's more the producers or the writers or whoever thinking about like, oh, well, this is a complete song, but what is the audience going to think? Can we count on their attention span to stay stay in it? <laughs> I think the 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 one they cut down that. The most egregious example of this for me in this movie is Gold, the song that Roddy sings when he's talking about how uh, it's it's right after Amber has her whole, like, oh, my face is a mess moment. Mm-hmm. And uh, he has this very fairly traditional opera song compared to the rest of the musical uh, or rock opera. And uh, they cut the second verse out of it. And I don't know if that is as jarring to people who haven't listened to the soundtrack, but it is jarring to me because it's like we get the first verse and chorus and then it goes straight into the, but my kids will know all this stuff and how like uh, he's changing his mind and he's like, okay, my, my fortune isn't going to go to any of my kids. It's going to go to Shiloh. Mm. And, uh, it, it feels like an incomplete song, and uh, part of me feels like, oh, if the second verse was there, it might be <sighs> just pacing again. My brain always goes back to pacing. There's a certain pacing of things, and uh, it's why I hate single edits of a lot of songs. Cause it's like, well, the, the song was written a particular way, and it, now you just cut it so that it would fit into the typical radio time. Not because it sounds like a better song or anything like that. Case in point, I it boggles my mind how any radio station will play the radio edit of uh, Don't Fear the Reaper. Because to me, the bridge part of that song is the best part of the song. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this sort of, going back to this movie specifically, this sort of speaks back to what I was talking about with, uh, I touched on a little bit with Little Shop of Horrors, is when it when this movie gets to the third act, I think is where the seams really start to show and you start to see it, it the pacing just cause it's like we're an hour into the movie and they've actually done a really great job establishing all these characters and giving them screen time and even making each of the songs that are present feel necessary. Like even uh, Amber whining about her face, it feel it's a, it's sort of a character show. It, there's character shown in that. Yeah. Um, then they get to the third act, and it's like, I feel like the studio was like, you need to get this in around like an hour and a half, or we aren't going to sell it. And so you get that cut verse in gold, you get several songs cut from later in the play, and then, and just this is just speaking specifically about the structural thing issues that I see. We get rid of, uh, they, they really restructured uh, the way that Shiloh gets from... Uh, like that TV where Roddy tells her, oh, you have to earn your cure, to uh, her actually getting out on stage. There's like a whole scene with the grave robber that they cut where he's like hanging from the ceiling and uh, part of uh, the trials. that There's like this whole 
thing in the third act of Shiloh has to go through these trials to earn her cure or something. And I don't even know if that works in the original musical because I haven't actually listened to it. But that's where the song uh, A Needle Into a Bug comes from, if you've ever heard that one. Uh, but that song is not in the... It's it's in the credits of the movie, but it's not in the actual movie, even though they did actually film it. Um, Apparently it's on the Blu-ray. Ah, that's where it is. They might also have a couple of the other songs that... Uh, can't get it up if the girl's breathing. That made it onto the soundtrack. Come Up and Try My New Parts did not, at least on the regular soundtrack. Um, and uh, honestly... Uh, don't think they needed to clu- include those songs, so those may have been okay cuts. Well, they're they're also on the Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, but yeah, so like it feels like they really rushed through the third act, and that's again speaking just from a structural point because there are also some writing issues that I have with the third act. <laughs> but I feel like I've been talking for a while, so. Theo, what do you like about this movie? <laughs> I, I'm just, I, I can't think of good questions at the moment. I'm sorry. It's okay. Um, oh, man. I don't know. I think it's, it's, it's just the, the movie does, um, like, like I made that joke earlier that it appeals to a very particular niche. Uh, and I think it's just, I really like it when things are like aggressively not for a wide audience. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Like I have yeah. a lot of respect for that, that this is a very particular story that they wanted to tell and studios were like, I don't know guys, I think that's going to make a huge part of your audience really uncomfortable. And they were like, yeah, fuck it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they should be. It's an uncomfortable story. Like, <laughs> Yeah. And it's not, it, you know, it's not, it's not uh it's not an uncomfortable story in a way that like you know a, a story dealing with a very very like really serious topics can make people uncomfortable and you're saying no it's it's you know important and that's why we should be like feel uncomfortable about this cuz it's making a statement this isn't making any kind of fucking statement <laughs> it's just a really uncomfortable like splatterhouse uh conglomeration of ideas that again is has this very particular tone and this very like ref, very very fine you know bead drawn on its audience saying like these are the people there's there's like three people out of every thousand that we're trying to pitch this movie to it's <laughs> it's such a narrow swath of an audience that they're going for that I, I just, number one, respect the hell out of the fact that this got made. <laughs> and number two, I'm probably a member of that audience. So it's, it's nice. Like, yeah. <laughs> Cause you also, I don't know. It's, you, you have to be willing to, willing to go to that, like, you know, willing to see these, uh, the, the, term I used before, like Splatterhouse, mm-hmm. like those kinds of movies without sort of demanding the like gruesome level of torture porn that the Saw movies give you. <laughs> Cause there's, there's very little realistic about any of the violence in this. It's, yeah. it's all goofy grand guignol stuff, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, 
So, yeah, like, and I don't know. It, it feels like a movie that I am very much part of the audience for. Mm-hmm. And it's such a such a ridiculously specific audience that you pitch it as like, okay, it's a futuristic Victorian goth uh, Grand Guignol industrial musical that that alienates so much of your audience. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that I'm just, and then you like the fact that people like uh, uh, Anthony Stewart header showing up in it is just like yeah. icing on the cake. It's <laughs> and friggin' Sarah Brightman. I will never get over that. <laughs> and they have one clip of her in uh, the special features where she's just saying like, you know, it, there's a lot of things for a lot of different people in this musical. They're, like you, you don't have to pick. There's, I think there's something for everyone in this. I, that's like a, a really boiled down version of what she said, but that's basically what she says. And I kind of love that. That's the only clip they have of her. <laughs> it's like she can't speak to anything else about it. <laughs> but I mean, you know, not to say that nobody. Nobody in this movie is doing it for the paycheck, which no. I just think is amazing. Yeah. Like, even, if, even if you can criticize people's performances, they're going for it. Like, yeah. like nobody's phoning in a role here. And that's that's one of the things I, like that you touched on uh, that I, I kind of wanted to speak to is that one of the things that I really respond to nowadays in just entertainment or art in general is – whether or not the uh, the pe- the work of art or the piece of entertainment, if that's too pretentious sounding, is, is whether or not it's what the creators wanted to make. Um, and uh, you see it all the time in movies where, specifically with like <laughs> uh, a bunch of superheroes movies, possibly lately, um, where you uh, have a like a director might have a concept and then uh, the studio says well okay that's your idea but hey what about this this tested well with with our uh with our groups our our PR groups and everything so you should probably put this in there and it's like well that's not part of the idea that I had well we'll put it in there anyway because we're paying you um and uh so like it it's it's so uh, it breaks my heart when I see something and I, there, there are moments in a movie or a, an album of music or a TV show or something where I'm like, okay, in this scene, everyone's into it, but in this scene, they're not. So clearly this wasn't part of the original plan. <laughs> um, I feel like I've got, I've kind of gotten good at sensing that, but like there, there's plenty of stuff where I, I would much rather see something and be like, you know, that's not for me, but that feels like, it feels like everyone was into it and this was what they wanted to make rather than, oh, this could have been really good, but the people weren't the right people or they just got too much meddling from whoever has the money or whatever like that. And that, that's sort of one of the things that disappoints me about the third act of this movie is because it feels like it's a little more cut into pieces. Uh, it feels like it doesn't have enough, enough room to breathe the way the first two acts of the movie do. Yeah. Um, One of the other things you touched on that I was going to talk about, 
I'm trying to remember now, and I was hoping I would remember as I was saying that statement. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I don't know. I I definitely agree with what you're saying there, though. Like, there's while there there are definitely some cuts that didn't need to happen in the third act, and you know it starts to really show its seams. Um, there's nothing really corporate about this. Yeah. This, this movie is clearly somebody's big, messy, ugly baby, and they loved it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that, that reminded me of one of the other things I was going to talk about. You, you, uh, one of the things you said was it doesn't, it's, it's not like this musical is trying to make a statement about anything. I agree with you to a certain extent, but like, Listening to the soundtrack and having watched the movie several times now, it does try to grapple with something literary. Mm -hmm. This is what I was talking about before with writing issues <laughs> is because it's trying to grapple with this idea of like, it, it's sort of trying to grapple with this big concept idea of nature versus nurture and, uh, uh, or to be more specific to this movie, uh, are we slaves to our genetics? Can we, uh, fix it, quote unquote, fix it with surgery, or can we somehow like push through, like come out on top despite our genetics or something. And that's sort of what infected is establishing at the beginning of the, the story is uh, like, she has again, lyrics that are right on the nose. How much is, how much of its genetics, how much of it is fate, how much of it depends on the choices that we make. Um, So that's sort of like the raison d'etre of the, of the, of the musicals, like, which is a very, uh, like, and in some ways is sort of like a very universal theme. It's like, oh, are we fated to, it's, it pops up in so many different things. Are we fated to, is fate a thing or do we have a choice in the matter? Um, the place in the musical that I feel like it falls apart is when they get into this convoluted ending of, Oh wait, but it's your dad who poisoned you. Oh wait, but you're your dad's daughter, so maybe you're a killer too. Oh wait, I am giving you a gun. Oh wait, dad, you, there's so many things, like, in a 15 minute period of time, they try to pull, like, all of these magic tricks on the audience, and it just, like, because they're trying to do so much, it kind of doesn't work at all. <laughs> The biggest issue being, okay, if we're establishing that our, our thesis is, or our, our hypo, her, not hypothesis, I don't know. If the thing we're grappling with is, are we slaves to our genetics? They get to the end and Roddy re reveals that, oh, you don't have a disease. Your dad has been poisoning you. And then, uh, at the end, uh, Shiloh has genetic emancipation where she's talking about how, uh, uh, though the imprint is deep in me, it's still up to me. Uh, like, uh, it's, the, the, what's the line? She says something like, uh, something, something is not up to my genes. And, uh, it's sort of, Again, there's so many different things that they're trying to do in that short little period of time that I'm that I'm trying to think like, okay, is that speaking specifically to her being infected, or is it speaking to the fact that Roddy's trying to say, oh, kill your father because you're a killer too, like he's a killer. Um, but applying specifically to the whole infected thing, 
you, Roddy, you just revealed to her that she isn't infected and it, it was her dad poisoning her. So the whole I'm persevering in spite of my genetics thing doesn't really work because it's not part of her genetics. Does that make sense? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I, when I said that, I was obviously like, you know, giving a bit of hyperbole. I wasn't trying yeah. to say that the movie doesn't have a theme to it. I apologize. I just sort of went off there and I didn't get you give you a chance to respond to that. No, no, it's fine. I was just kind of trying to make the point that this is it's like this isn't Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven, you know? No. Like <laughs> uh, I do under like I, I was trying to use hyperbole for effect. Okay. But, <laughs> but I do get what you're saying, yes. It's I'd I'd probably have to go back and rewatch it a couple more times to actually draw a conclusion on to as to whether that theme is intentional or it's just a pattern that arose based off of the blocks that they're using to build this story. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Cause I think number one is human beings and number two as, you know, writers and people who are predisposed to be looking for these sorts of things. Um, I do think a lot of times we see, patterns when they weren't necessarily intended, but then you can get to that argument of like death of the author and who gives a fuck if they're intended, this yeah. is what they're saying, and you know, that that sort of thing. But <clears throat> that yeah, that that was the only point I was trying to make. It's not yeah. it's um it's not a film that you walk away from with uh some deep fucking harrowing co- <laughs> statements on the nature of the human soul that you have to grapple with. Yeah. But I th- part of me feels like the reason we don't walk away is because they didn't really execute it well. <laughs> I yeah, think that I, may- I mean, there's... Yeah. <laughs> you could say that for a lot of parts of the movie. Yeah. But, uh... Oh, God, I really enjoy it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, dude. I, I Specifically the music, I just... uh, Quick trip to the department backstory, like... The first bands that I really got into when I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to get into music now around like when I was like 11 or 12 or 13 or something like that. The first three bands that I really got into were System of a Down, Disturbed and Linkin Park. So I have a deep vein of metal in my heart from back then. And even though my tastes have changed over the years and uh, I have a much more a uh, I, I have a potentially more discerning taste, perhaps, if that's a phrase we want to use. Podcast title reference. Um, <laughs> um, and like nowadays, my favorite band is Pink Floyd, and the stuff that I write isn't necessarily metal. I still there's so there's certain things about metal that I just can't help but love. Um, and it, it's like again talking about the whole. Uh, the stuff that they're trying to do with the story and, uh, like, horror and the music and stuff. One of the things that I, I thought of while you were talking before was the story is sort of appropriate for opera, like we talked about with Hannibal, because we can't go through an episode of this podcast with talking about with Hannibal. <laughs> um, one of their, one of their, like, driving ideas when they went into the beginning of that series was, we want to have that heightened realism of opera. And that's not heightened realism, but they wanted to have that heightened level of drama that you get from opera. 
And that's sort of what they have here. And it's sort of what makes the structure of opera appropriate for a story like this. And then on top of that, you got metal, which can be incredibly melodramatic. Um, and even that, like, it's, it supports what they're trying to do with the movie. <laughs> with the musical. Yeah. It sort of fits in a weird way. And I mean, this movie's got a hell of an industrial pedigree when you consider the fact that the lead singer, Skinny Puppy, actually shows up in it. Yeah. And dude, he's, he's got, his performance is one of my favorite performances in the whole movie because you tell me, oh, it's a dude from an industrial, uh, like, I actually haven't listened to any Skinny Puppy, so I don't know what his singing is like in the band, but you hear the name Ogre, and I'm thinking, like, oh, this is like a death metal screamo dude or something like that. Someone whose primary choice when singing is screaming. But he puts in a fucking awesome performance, so I was probably incredibly mistaken. Yeah, he's he's excellent. Uh, I'll, I'll send you some skinny puppy. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, talking about bringing you... Uh, <laughs> it didn't bring me back to when I was 11, but uh, watching it did definitely remind me of... Uh, being like really into like ministry and nine inch nails and oh school. yeah <laughs> mm-hmm. production wise too this movie the, like the soundtrack is like very well produced having done some recording myself now and having listened gotten because of doing my own recording i've gotten again potentially a more discerning ear when it comes to listening to how albums are produced and stuff the soundtrack for this is really well produced. There's a lot of ways you can uh, produce metal badly, metal and industrial music poorly. Um, and then on top of that, it's a musical, so you need to be able to get the the story across, and the, the, that needs to translate through the music. And they do a fantastic job with the arrangements and the way that the songs are produced. Um, especially on the album. I, I noticed this time watching the movie that they do bring uh, the vocal volume a little bit up, up more in the movie than they do on the soundtrack, which sort of makes sense because on the movie you're paying more attention to the characters and stuff. And so it, it's, you want, you really want that plot to get across. So th- of course they're going to produce it a little bit di- differently. Um, but yeah, like the, the soundtrack, there's so many riffs that I really enjoy. Uh, like Night Surgeon, even though again it's it's one of those really specific songs and could come off as kind of silly, just the performances in that song are fucking badass. Between Roddy with his operatic voice, Bill Mosley with the sort of more manic uh, ten- rock tenor voice, and then you got uh, Ogre with his his very like. Yeah, it's it, we can say like over the top Italian accent, right? That's a, that isn't going too far to say. Yeah, no, that's. <laughs> but that's... It, it's sort of it's sort of part of that character. That's sort of what it, that's intentional, intentional. Yeah. Um, and then you've got Anthony Stewart Head with his just amazing tenor voice and the way that he. One of the things I I like, the DVD only has two special features on it. <laughs> Uh, it's got a featurette about the making, it's got a sort of like DVD, uh, special feature thing about the making of the movie. 
And then it's got one of the featurettes that was on the website before the movie came out about specifically about the song or specifically about Anthony Stewart had playing Repo Man and uh, uh, the song Legal Assassin. And uh, they talked about how Anthony Head plays the Repo Man sort of like Jekyll and Hyde. He's got, when he's Nathan, uh, the father figure, he's got a very smooth, melodic voice. But when he goes into the Repo Man mode, it's just this really growly thing. And it's it works really, really well. Especially in those songs like Legal Assassin and Night Surgeon, where you have like this sort of gradual shift from one to the other, and he just pulls it off flawlessly. Again, a stellar performance for something that, like, it didn't necessarily need so much, so like, didn't necessarily deserve that much heart put into it. Yeah, I mean. I think I've I've definitely said that like those exact words before. <laughs> but also if if they didn't, I I doubt we'd be talking about it. Yeah. Like if if everybody didn't like do their damnedest to try and make this movie work, I highly doubt we would be like I had to defend this movie over the weekend like <laughs> where, where somebody was like uh um God, I don't even remember what the conversation was. We were in a bar and it was very loud. Um, but, but I was talking to Dylan Roth of Dead Show. Oh, wow. And uh, he was like, uh, he was like, yeah, I watched it the other day and I'm, uh, I'm never going to watch it again. It was a very bad movie. I was like, <laughs> yeah, all right, but I love it. Like, <laughs> it's like, I'm sorry. It's, <laughs> it's terrible and amazing and I love it. So, dude, I, I have it. <laughs> I had that same discussion with TJ days after I did that showing in freshman year. Yeah. And at the time, I was not as... Neither of us, to be fair, were very good at having civil discussions about things we disagreed on. So it, it wasn't the greatest moment of our friendship, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> um, But, uh, yeah, it's like... Again, we understand that it is a flawed movie. But it's so awesome at the same time. <laughs> like, 17 is, in some ways, like, the, like, I know, uh, like, again, going back to TJ, TJ is huge into classic punk, mm -hmm. which is kind of an oxymoron now that I think of it. But anyway, <laughs> he heard the song 17 and saw it as an abomination. And I'm like, okay, I can sort of understand that. But at the same time, you're watching it in the movie and it's like, you got the stuffed animals singing the chorus, and then Joan Jett shows up randomly, and it's like, <laughs> I, I I can't be mad at this. This is amazing. <laughs> oh, my God. And, like, again, stuff that they somehow do really, really right in this movie, that transition in the movie from the end of 17 back into the actual bedroom, like, out of this fever dream back into the real world... It's such a stark, dramatic moment because you got Shia going, Daddy's girl's a fucking monster. And then before the song, before the track even ends, you've got the smack from Nathan and the track cuts out like hard stop. And then we're back in the real world and it's like, fuck. <laughs> that works on an emotional level. It's like, Wait a second. That was just that was that just a little bit of the Repo Man showing through 
when it's not supposed to. Yeah, there's there's so many so many things about this movie. Like again, I mentioned this on Twitter. Who ordered pizza is a recitative. An opera recitative is basically the music. It's anything that's not an aria. Arias are the big uh, the big numbers where like people are professing their love or like someone's talking about how they killed people. Um Recitatives are just sort of like the spoken in-between parts, the stuff that, okay, since we're doing opera, we have to set this to music. And so it's, who ordered pizzas when uh, Nathan enters Roddy's office and uh, the children are there, the Largo kids are there, and Roddy's there, and they're basically telling Nathan that he has to, uh, he has to kill Blind Mag. Um, and... Uh, so it's not a proper a song in the proper sense of the word, but I love that track. I love the music in that track. There's great guitar at the beginning as Luigi sings "Who Ordered Pizza," and then they have that cool little back and forth between Roddy and Nathan, where they're doing the flashback thing and sort of overlapping lyrics with a ha- uh, "Shall I Take You Back There?" That's a great little melody, um, and even that melody whether intentionally or not, might be a reference to older opera or the Carmina Burana or something like that. It's like Darren Smith, the composer, did like study opera, and so there is that vein in in this movie. And so that's why, musically, I have so much respect for this movie. Even if the story and the lyrics don't always uh, match to that level of uh, artistry. <laughs> I have lots of thoughts about this movie, obviously. <laughs> I've had a lot of time to think about it. <laughs> the fact that we're straight-facedly talking about a, a song called Who Ordered Pizza yeah. says uh, says quite a bit about what you should expect from this movie if you haven't <laughs> seen it. Yeah, it, it's... If anything about this movie seems like you might enjoy it, then at least give it a watch. <laughs> You might be like Dylan and be like, well, fuck that. That was terrible. But you may just be like, you know what? <laughs> that was that was a mess, but that was a fucking awesome mess. Yeah. I uh, <clears throat> honestly, I think um, I'm not I'm not well versed in opera. Mm-hmm. Um, but so it, it might be part of a crossover there. But uh Honestly, a lot of this reminds me of uh, Penny Dreadful in a way. Ah. Just because of how Victorian the story is. Yeah. With, like, the crumbling of a dynasty and, you yeah, know, the, uh, the sick young girl kept up in a house being poisoned by her family member. And, like, that, that whole set is insanely Victorian. Oh, like, yeah. It's absurdly Victorian. Where... Um, I mean, for, like, it, it is set up like a Victorian manner, but then you've got even the stuff like the paintings on the walls or holograms that, like, follow you. Yeah. Like, that's so weird and cool. Like, <laughs> there's so much style in this movie that's fantastic. There is. It, it, that, that is one thing that I think you absolutely can't fault on is it has a very, very particular style. And it, it, like, nails it. Like, yeah. it has this look and, 
there's a there's a depth to the world like you know maybe not to a lot of the writing yeah. but there's a depth to the world that they've created yeah where you know it it's this bizarre mashup of like futuristic dystopia and like just classic uh classic like haunted house horror mm-hmm. um so that the the aesthetic of the movie is very very specific and very well defined. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um. Yeah. Speaking to like like you were saying the the sort of forms that it harkens back to Victorian wise. I remember, uh, Brandon Source, who uh, people listening to this podcast may have heard. I think I'm pretty sure I put up that horror episode of that first podcast I tried doing with Brandon and Kyle as one of the bonus episodes for this podcast because it had you on it and we were talking about horror. Um, so people, if you, like, I'm talking about someone whom you may have heard before. <laughs> um, but Brandon, uh, he came to the second showing I did freshman year and it, I remember him coming up to me afterwards and saying, like, yeah, that whole thing with like the the Italian family and their dynasty crumbling and stuff. That's that's like classic opera stuff, um, or the, the the big Italian family with like the the patriarch and the children are just disgraces. That that s- speaks to something that is has been established in opera, mm-hmm. um, which again it's fascinating the different like literary sources or artistic sources that this movie is grappling with. Um, and like you were saying, the style, the depth of the aesthetic and everything, they do such a great job with it in the first two acts of the movie, which again is why it disappoints me that it sort of just gets rushed. And part of why the third act feels so jarring to me that by how, how much after having so much room to breathe in those first two acts to just rush through that third act is such a disservice to what the first two acts establish, even if the writing isn't up to par. But even then, they do they do have little world building things like the uh the old lady running the turntables at the opera. <laughs> <laughs> and there oh my gosh, there were so many little funny moments from this movie that I had completely forgotten about. Like there's that part in uh the uh the festival at the beginning of the movie that Roddy brings Shiloh to and it's right when uh, like the Largo children are first showing up to that festival and it's another recitative thing where uh uh Luigi he's walking into the festival or something and like someone's trying to get him to do something and he just turns to them and goes I will punch you in the face <laughs> <laughs> or I will stab you in the face. And uh, like it, it's it, it caught me so off guard the first time I saw it, and then this time I saw it because I'd completely forgotten about it. <laughs> uh, but it's just like again, totally, totally into what they're doing. <laughs> oh man. Oh my god! Wait, what's uh? What's Pavi's line that slays me? Where um, it's when uh, Luigi and Amber are arguing, and he's so the line the line would rhyme with fuck, and he just yeah. 
his line ends with, I just think my siblings should... Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) And he just leaves. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) My brother and sister should... Poppy, shut the fuck up! Yeah. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, he's doing it in that little sing-songy voice. Yeah. Yeah, like... They what? Also, what a terrifying character design. Oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, he's a he's a sick and twisted fuck. <laughs> um What was one of the Oh, yeah, that's one of the things I was gonna talk about. Honestly, they did some really great even though it wasn't widespread, the marketing that they did do for this movie was pretty fantastic. The first trailer was just the at the opera tonight sequence mm-hmm. with probably some other extra bits of footage spliced into it. But that really was what sold me on the movie because at the opera tonight is such a great ensemble song in terms of a musical. And it showed uh, how many different textures and timbres they have to the story, the aesthetic, the uh, music, the voices because it starts off with Shiloh, and then it goes to Mag, and then it's Nathan, and then Amber and the Grave Robber have their moment, and then they have my favorite moment with Roddy, Luigi, and Pavi doing that sort of three-part thing, talking about how they're going to set the stage, and I... I, I, Like, whenever I get to that, like, I'm one of those people who sings along with musicals, and so I get to that part of the song, and I'm, like, trying to do all three parts at once, and it's just a mess, and I love it. (laughs) Yeah, actually, as far as ensemble songs go, the one, because that pops up right as we're, like, pulling into the home stretch of the the story, it reminds me a lot of... uh, um, walk through the fire from the Buffy musical. <laughs> yeah. Well, and yeah, they're serving this. And same... also, also featuring Anthony Stewart heads. So that might be. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but they are also sort of serving the same purpose in the yeah. structure of a musical. I didn't realize that Alexa Vega came back and did a Spy Kids movie after Repo. That's very <laughs> interesting. That is interesting. Um, That's gotta feel weird. Also, uh, and the Devil's Carnival right after that. Which yes. Is, like, which is made successor to Repo. Yeah, it, spiritual successor to Repo, and it was made by the same made by same composer and lyricist. I think Damon Bowsman also directed that. Yeah, um, a lot of people came back. Yeah, that I haven't watched. I did listen to the soundtrack, and I actually really love the uh, the I I can't remember the name of the song. Let me pull that up real quick because I. It's easier for me to just pull that up and say the actual name rather than say the wrong thing and uh, get con- people confused. Um, uh, there it is. A Penny for a Tale. The one that Ivan Moody from uh, Five Finger Death Punch sings. Oh, okay. Yeah, Ivan Moody, lead singer for Five Finger Death Punch. I'm not a huge Five Finger Death Punch fan. They're not... They're like it, He's got a cool voice, but they aren't the most creative songwriters. Um, but then again, I 
have my own taste in music. If you love Five Finger Death Punch, more power to you. I fucking love his performance on this song, A Penny for a Tale. Because uh, he's playing a character called the Hobo Clown. <laughs> uh, and he's basically just telling a fable. And uh, the music itself is just very traditional carnival-type music. And so to hear this really deep, deep, like, haunting voice over it, actually, it's got this... It just creates this really cool contrast and this very haunting feel to it. Very creepy, atmospheric feel. Yeah, I've actually... I wasn't even familiar with this. I I wasn't aware that this movie existed until uh, I started doing research for the podcast tonight. Um, and so I was looking, I was looking at this like cast list and stuff. And I didn't realize that Emily Autumn's in this who kicks ass. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'll probably have to watch that at some point. Uh, because I did like a lot of the music. Uh, again, not sure if the story is the greatest. Oh yeah. It also has Sean Patrick Flannery from, uh, Boondock Saints. Hmm. <laughs> The one that wasn't, the one that didn't go on to be in The Walking Dead. <laughs> well, yeah, it seems like um, this uh, this movie uh, this movie was much better received than Repo was. Yeah, I think it was probably. Again, I haven't watched it, so I can't speak to it. But reading, I, I have read the the plot summary on Wikipedia because it's just like I don't care about being spoiled. Um, Especially if I'm going to listen to the soundtrack. Uh, but there are some interesting things, I think, that they were doing with it. So, yeah. I think it might even be on Netflix, so maybe I can just throw that on at some point. But, yeah. Repo. <laughs> oh, Repo. <laughs> oh, Repo. <laughs> oh, man. Uh... Do you have uh, have anything else? I don't think I do. I mean, there there are so many things I could talk about with this movie because it's one of those things that like, it, like I'm one I'm sort of one of those people who if I get into something I just want to learn everything about it, and so I kind of did that with this movie when it originally came out, and so there's a bunch of different knowledge I could pull from to talk about, but that's not necessary. <laughs> yeah, I don't need to make you or other people sit through that. Um, that's what the Silent Hill episodes are for. Anyway, <laughs> um, but yeah, if, if if there's anything about this movie that you think you might enjoy, give it a try. If you don't like it, that's fine. We understand. <laughs> we won't we won't judge you. Uh, and yeah, so uh, this has been our discussion on Repo, the genetic opera. I. Uh, Next, we are going to be talking about the Evil Dead musical, which doesn't have a movie adaptation, as I mentioned before. Um, I <laughs> I don't know if uh, too many people showed up for the uh, the live tweet that I did for Repo. Uh, I got a few people uh, interacting and stuff. Um, I'm not saying that to like try and guilt people into doing it or anything. I'm saying that because I think instead of just watching the first Evil Dead, I'm going to listen to the soundtrack again Mm -hmm. um, of the musical. Because I have actually seen a stage production of the musical, but 
that's basically my only experience with it. So it would be more beneficial for the podcast if I re-listen to it. And so I could live tweet my listen to it because, I mean, you can do that too. It's not like there's a a uh, visual element to live tweeting that requires there be a movie. <laughs> that's so true. other people want to listen along with me, that and I'll post about that at some point. Uh, I've also been running into internet troubles, so we'll see how that goes for the continued uh, attempts at trying to put this <laughs> podcast out on time. It sucks that like when I'm finally like, yeah, I planned all this out, got deadlines for everything, everything's going to work out fine. My computer is just like, well, what if I just made it so you can't get on the internet? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, computer, but why? <laughs> Please, come on. <laughs> but computer, no. Computer, no. Um, yeah, I'm actually recording from my parents' house right now. But, anyway. Thank you for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed, feel free to comment or tweet at us or uh, send us stuff to our email. Uh, the contact info for all that stuff will be when the music starts and uh, hope you'll be back in a couple of weeks for our discussion of Evil Dead the musical good night good night this has been A Matter of Taste if you'd like to get in contact with us email us at amatteroftastepodcast at gmail.com follow us on twitter at aomotpodcast find full episode posts at amatteroftastepodcast.blogspot.com and follow us as A Matter of Taste Podcast on Tumblr, Facebook, and iTunes. Thanks for listening. Good evening, listeners. Join us this evening. Ah, oh, fuck. Good evening. Join us this evening. Um, <clears throat> welcome, listeners. Join us this evening as we discuss... Uh, fuck, I have to write this down. Okay. Because I'm trying to say it, and it's not working. <laughs> my mouth can't words That's directly with my think. Happens to the best of us. Computer, move! <laughs> Damn you! This is this is quality podcast. Ha 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 ha! Ha ha! I can't feel nothing at all. Bound, 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 bound. It appeals to a very particular particular niche. Mm-hmm. Particular. Um, <laughs> <laughs> apparently Nissa's commenting on this.